What's up? Welcome back to the podcast. A little thing we like to call Jonathan underscore Foster. Nice. It's feeling mellow today, right? That's what we got going on here. Maybe it works because we have our mellow friend, <laughs> Keith Childs. Keith is an author, uh, well known for a lot of books, but maybe you've seen his Unseries, Undefeated, Unbound, Unarmed. There's several of them, really uh, strong. And then recently I've been reading Solo Deus, which is a part of a new series he's doing. So I encourage you to check out Keith's writing. He's been on the scene for a while, and I really appreciate the fact that he's been helping folks figure out kind of what they believe. And um, he's also been a pastor, church planning pastor, so we have that in common. And he is one of the managing editors of Choir Publishing. My book, The Reconstructionist, is with Choir. So we've been on a few emails and a few indirect pieces of communication, but this was the first time we got to hang out face-to-face or Zoom-to-Zoom, as it were. And before we get into that, don't forget about three quick things. Number one, I hope you've had a chance to sign up to my Substack newsletter. Search for Jonathan underscore Foster on Substack, and it would be fun to connect with you in that way. Secondly, Girardian Intersections. It's our Eventbrite online international conference, actually, because Andre will be from South Africa, other main presenters all across the country. And uh, we hope that you'll join us. Tickets are $29.99 at this point. If you're hearing this before August 19th of 2023, there's still a chance to get in on the goodness. So I hope you'll search for Girardian Intersections on eventbrite.com. Finally, don't forget about Theology Beer Camp with Trip Fuller and a bunch of other podcasters and theologians, theologians, theologians. That'll be happening October 19th through the 21st. I've got some friends that are flying in from around the country. They're going to go down there with me, down there, meaning Springfield, Missouri, which is down from Kansas City, where I'm at. So I'm looking forward to it, and I invite you to come. Make sure you use my name, Jonathan Foster, as a promo code. It'll get you $25 off. And I've always wanted to know how much my name was worth, and now I know $25. All right, then. So what we need now is a little bit of organ to kind of segue us from this movement to the next movement, which is our conversation with the author, Keith Giles. Great to uh, finally meet. I know we've been on lots of emails and and then uh, yeah. secondary kinds of indirect stuff. So it's cool to talk to you today. Yeah, it's really it's really great to uh, to meet you face to face, or at least screen to screen, and have a conversation. That's <laughs> right. great. Screen to screen. Where are you? Uh, where are you coming from? Um, I moved back to El Paso, Texas, um, about four years ago, and uh, still here. So uh, before that, I was like 25 years in Orange County, California. Okay. And um, would love to get back there one day, but I don't know that uh, I can afford to get back in. Once you leave, it's hard to get back. It's not the truth, for sure. 
Um, well, as soon as I asked that, I remembered that you were in El Paso. So, but yeah, yeah. that's cool. Very good. Where you at? Where are you? Kansas City. Um, it's kind of where we're our family's from. We have a little place in Morrison, Colorado, too. But Kansas so. City, Missouri, or Kansas? Um, Kansas. I um, mean, <coughs> we live in a suburb called Olathe, okay. which is in, in Kansas. But yeah, back and forth a lot. It's all uh, all kind of smashed together. Is how that works. <laughs> cool. So, but yeah, man. Well, uh, we shall get into it. This is my uh, friend Keith Giles, and listeners of the podcast may know Keith. He's a uh, author. He's got a lot of books. Has been in the game a while, and uh, is really well known for his his un un Jesus books, undefeated, unbound, un. Armed, unarmed, untangled, unveiled, yeah. unexpected. Yeah, I feel unworthy <laughs> <laughs> uh, to uh, to interact with you. So, so thanks for hanging out. And Keith's been a pastor, and he's yeah, kind of been been doing this maybe a little bit longer than some folks in terms of whatever we call this kind of faith journey. Yes, yeah. this whole thing. So. Tell us a little bit about that. How how did you get into, hey, reimagining what my faith could be and maybe should be? Yeah. So, yeah, I was um, kind of raised in a Southern Baptist home in, in El Paso, Texas. That's kind of where I grew up from, like, junior high through college and met my wife out here and all that. Um, but I got licensed and ordained in the Southern Baptist Church while I was um, in college. And... Um, and yeah, so I was doing that. I was serving on staff at different churches. We moved to California. And while we were in California, we started getting involved with the vineyard movement and uh, helped to plant a church out there called The River in Tustin, California. And that was a really, you know, an overall a really good experience. But it was about three and a half years into that um, church planting experience, two major things happened. And this is kind of what I think sent me on my trajectory of deconstruction, reconstruction, you know, rethinking my, my faith. So the first thing that happened, um, was I was, I was doing, I was running a column for relevant magazine and actually my very first interview for that column. Um, I interviewed this guy and, um, the theme of it was to sort of like talk to different religious experts and, you know, people like this and uh find out kind of like you know this was during the emergent movement right so um that was kind of what was in everybody's minds it was the pre-deconstruction movement right and um anyway i asked this guy uh what was the biggest problem with the church in america and his answer was that the fundamental problem was that most christians in america don't understand the gospel and then he said the gospel is not saying a prayer so you go to heaven after you die and again, I was licensed and ordained. I was on staff at churches. I, I was I was planting a church, had been had been you know in the faith for you know a couple of decades, <laughs> and um, and that was the first time I'd ever heard that. I was like, really, what? And um, so yeah, he kind of blew my mind, and that was a big, huge shift for me, realizing that you know as he explained it to me, you know, the gospel, you know, you find the gospel in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're called the gospels. That's because they contain the gospel. And in the gospels, Jesus, you know, the guy we're supposed to be following, 
he tells us what the good news is. That's the good, that's the gospel, good news. And it's all about the kingdom. And, and the whole point of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within you. You can enter the kingdom right now. It's not something you go to after you're dead. It's it's a reality you experience anytime you feel like it, anytime you want. Like right now would be better. And um, and so that was that blew my mind. It really rearranged the spiritual furniture in my in my heart and my mind. And so that was the first radical realization that. And if I'm wrong about that, something so fundamental as what yeah. is the gospel, what else am I wrong about? <laughs> so that opened me up to the possibility that I needed to rethink everything. And then the right about the same time, um, the other thing that happened was I read this uh, little PDF article, um, about 30, 40 pages by a guy named Ray Mayhew. And it's called Embezzlement, the Corporate Sin of American Christianity. I offer it on my um, one of my websites for free as a download because um, it was just so amazing. And what it really does is kind of starting with, you know, the Gospels, the Book of Acts, going through early church history for about 300, 400 years, and just documents how caring for the poor was the DNA of the early church. Like that was pretty much the reason why the church spread. It wasn't miracles. Um, it wasn't even evangelism or apostles. It was literally this radical compassion and love for the outcast, the widow, the orphan, the people that everybody else in society wanted nothing to do with. And, and the you know, people being so perplexed, why do you bury the dead of these right. pagans? They're not even Christians. Why do you, like, adopt these children that are abandoned, you know, on the road? And, and like, why are you feeding these people? Why are you caring for them? Why are you housing them? Why are you putting them up in your house and things like this? And it was because of the love of Christ. And because of that, it was just this radical thing. So anyway, that is that article kind of led my my wife and I and our family in this direction of we left we left that church plant and we started a church that met in people's homes and no one took a salary I found a regular job in the real world like everybody else to support my family and all of the 100% all of the offerings that we collected for 11 years it all went to buy groceries for single moms or to uh, buy food for families living in a motel in Santa Ana um, we ended up starting a church in the back parking lot of a motel, that same motel in Santa Ana. We did that for 12 years. And that was just fantastic. I mean, cool. it was it was the most, it was like a spiritual revolution for me. It was like suddenly rediscovering Jesus and rediscovering uh, a, a kind of Christianity that was way more, that required way more than just showing up on Sunday morning. You know what I mean? It was like yeah. my life was like so intertwined with the, the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus, you know, prioritized. And uh, just so it was an amazing, amazing time in my life. That's pretty and cool. That's, that's where I can say, like, that's when I started writing my books. That's when I started blogging. Um, you know, a few years after that, I published Jesus Untangled with Choir Publishing. And then I didn't intend to start to write a seven-part series, but it just kind of worked out that way. Next thing I know, I'm writing another Jesus on book mm -hmm. about a different sort of um, pillar in deconstruction, like eternal conscious torment or the cross or church or hell or um, the end times or, you know, things like that. So, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what started it. And kind of, I guess where I ended up where I am now. That's pretty cool. That was all happening. Probably I'm guessing late nineties, maybe. And You know, no, 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 no. It was, it was um, 80s. 
later than that. No, it was 2000. Was it was oh, okay. in the 2000s. Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to say like 2007, maybe. Yeah. Something like that. I'm really bad with dates, but a, I, I, I have a memory that it was around 2007, 2008, <laughs> something like that. Um, so, yeah, we did that for 11 years. And um, then we moved to Boise, Idaho for a year. And then we moved to El Paso. We've been here for like, like I said, about four years. Okay. Well, I just the dates are immaterial, really, except that it it mirrors time frame. Probably lots of us who were probably similar age. I, um, my background is church planting as well. I've done three of them, and so our first one was in '96 in Scottsdale, Arizona, not far from Southern Cal. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, all similar kind of things, kind of that pre-emergent emergent church movement, yep. and just the it's just been fascinating to watch all of that develop yes. and fall apart in some cases and yeah i mean so i was yeah i was really i was pretty deep into writing articles and blogging around that time and so that was when um they're all gone now but there was like a website called the ooze spencer burke had a website called the ooze i started writing pretty regularly for them they were publishing a lot of my articles there i was writing for relevant magazine like i said and they were they were pretty uh, they had just started their print magazine before that they were on- online only um so they had just started the print magazine and um, and then there was a bunch of other little kind of blogs going on around that are like blog um, or I don't want to say blogs. It was kind of like a, it was like a Pathos before there was a Pathos, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Right. So it was um, there was like Seed Stories was one of them. Gink World, I think, was one of them. Um, anyway, I was submitting articles to all of these places and and getting published in them. And that's kind of what got me like realizing, hey, I have more to say. Yeah. I'm getting good response from people. And then, I, you know, then eventually I was like, well, maybe I could write a book. That's fun. I uh, tried to write for relevant, but I found most of my stuff they thought was irrelevant. So. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, what I realized was with relevant, I very quickly outstripped the kinds of things they were willing to publish. Like, oh, I bet. you know, there was, they were open to the emerging thing to a point. Right. But but once you start asking too many questions, you start challenging too many ideas. Like I think they still kind of want to. I think their base is still kind of in the evangelical world, you know. Sure. Um, so yeah, they didn't want to. They didn't want to get too critical. I did have a couple of articles kicked back to me. In fact, that's. I think that's why I ended up going, um, doing my blog, because I had two or three articles in a row where my editor would kick something back and say, "This is too negative. You you can't say that. You need to soften that." And I'm like. No, I don't. I'll just start a blog. <laughs> so I just started publishing it myself. Yeah, you can question uh, as long as the questions stay in the box. But once you start to question the box itself or get out of it, then it's a whole <laughs> different story. That's what I that's what I figured out. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Have you seen um, just made me wonder, too, with Southern your Southern Cal background and your vineyard background? Have you seen Jesus Revolution, the, the movie? You know what? I just watched it the other day because I was so critical of it when it came out because I again, I was part of the vineyard movement. Right. And so I know, I knew John Wimber, I knew Chris Wimber, um, I heard the stories about Lonnie Frisbee, and that, uh, and I knew the marketing hype around the film was total BS. And that really made me, I wrote several articles about it, just how it made me so angry that they were covering up the fact that Lonnie was gay, um, that this big, huge Jesus movement they were, you know, the film is so excited about, totally obscures not only that Lonnie was gay, but also literally erases um chuck smith's son um who who late because later on his son chuck smith's son chuck smith jr 
started the Calvary Chapel Church and tried to do for the gay community what Chuck Smith had done for the hippies. And he got kicked out of his father's own denomination and literally like shunned and like you don't exist. And that carried through into the film. In the movie, he has a daughter. He doesn't have a son at all. And a son who would have been the same age as Lonnie Frisbee. No, doesn't show up, doesn't exist. He doesn't have a son. So anyway, I just watched it the other night and uh, yeah, confirmed <laughs> confirmed all of my criticisms that it was total propaganda. Uh, well, I did not, I probably should have known the story about Chuck Smith Jr. But what's hilarious is after my wife and I watched it and tried to, um, tried to have an open mind about it, but struggled sure. through a lot of it. Afterwards, we were like, this is so obvious what they're doing for the hippies could be done for the LGBTQ crowd. It, it's no different. It's the same yes, thing. But now your story, face. even on top of that, just compounds the whole issue. What It's so crazy, man. Yeah. And so it would be one thing if the film did that and then had the point that, hey, hey this is right. an archetype. This is a template, right? What could the church, how could the church today do something similar and experience a similar, you know, revolution or revival experience? Well, we don't have hippies today. What community would it be that the church is currently closing their doors to, right? Huh, wouldn't that be the gay community? Hello, Um, or the trans community or intersex community? Like, of course it is, but they don't get it. It's such, again, it's, it's propaganda because, I realized when I was watching it, and my wife and I were talking about it afterwards, like this movie is not for non-Christians. You know what I mean? It's total Christian entertainment for Christians. Um, Because as I'm watching, I'm thinking, there's not anybody who's not already a Christian that would get any of this. They wouldn't buy any of this. Like all the conversion stories, and Mm -hmm. they're all so contrived and easy. You know, oh, just pray this prayer. It's like, oh, ding, everything's great. Like, no. I don't I don't think anyone's buying this except Christians. They're just like, oh, isn't that beautiful? Yeah, American beautiful? American evangelical Christians. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. It's totally uh it's frustrating. Now I wish I hadn't asked. Now I'm now I'm all I'm all <laughs> frustrated. The good thing about it, I thought, um there was an element when I really relaxed and tried to let myself like I do remember, you know, moments in my life, like I'm really thankful for some of the stuff that yeah, happened yeah, yeah. in church. And there were some elements of the show where I I was able to remember fondly some of my upbringing, even though I grew up in Iowa, not Southern California, but still a lot of similar kinds of things. And so, um, so I tried to dwell on that and uh, I will continue to try, but it's infuriating because the Christians just, this is one more example of the weird dysfunction that we are, we can just so easily get caught up in and trying to deny a part of. Yeah. And what a huge blind spot, right? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, the people that made this movie have no clue that every the rest the rest of us are watching it and going, "Hello, yeah, crazy man." Yeah. Well, I guess maybe that's a good segue to ask you about, like the yeah the role of change and transition and how have you kept open to new ideas? What you know, what's different about you and maybe someone else who came up the same way and. Mm-hmm. decided they couldn't change their mind. Um, what's going on with that? What's the importance of change? Yeah, a great question. Yeah, and I think this is, um, it's it, it's definitely one of these things where we should never try 
and I see a lot of people who go through deconstruction fall into this trap. So, you know, you have your own personal epiphany. You realize, or you doubt something, you question, you pull on the thread, you you go down the rabbit hole, you find out, oh my gosh, I don't believe this anymore. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to believe this other thing, right? And that's great. And I think that's healthy and good. All, all that's great. The danger is then when we try to become evangelists for our newfound, you know, reality, and we want to convince other people. And what we forget is that no one convinced us, hmm. right? I, I didn't deconstruct because someone hit me over the head with a bunch of verses and forced me to read some Rob Bell book. And then all of a sudden, oh, you're you're right. I'm wrong. And I'm going to change my mind. So it has to be something where every individual person, either you're asking these questions or not. Either you have this itch that nothing else can scratch that leads you in this direction or you don't. And so if you do, then you you, you don't need anybody to tell you, right? You You already get it. And so for those that don't get it, Okay, then that's fine, right? There was a time in my life when I didn't get it either. And, um, you know, if I went back in the time machine 15, 20 years, um, that version of Keith would be, would look at me and think, I'm a complete, I totally am a heretic and I've lost right. my mind. Right. Um, so, but I think that, like, to answer your question, I think what I have found to be the critical thing about you talking about changing your mind. Um, so I do this course, I've been doing this thing for like, four and a half years, five years, I created this thing called square one and it it's walks people through. It's like 12 weeks and it's a community and it's an online course. There's a weekly zoom call. And, um, and so I just kind of help people walk them through their deconstruction, help them make sense of deconstruction, help them figure out whatever their path to reconstruction looks like. I don't tell them what that is. I have no idea. I can't tell anybody, but I can help them figure it out. I kind of just lay off these like a, a buffet of options in front of them and, and let them figure out what works for them and what doesn't. And that's kind of the goal. So as the, as I've been doing this now for about four and a half years, I have like almost 200 people that I've interacted with over this time and seen all these different people, heard all these different people, you know, going through their deconstruction, reconstruction journey, in addition to my own. Um, here's what I, I recommend to people. And I say this to people all the time in square one, usually right at the beginning of the course, I'll say, you know, it's really great to to deconstruct, to rethink your theology. That's why we're here. That's that's what this is all about, and this is this is a good thing. But I but I say, I highly recommend that in all of your deconstructing of your theology, that you deconstruct your need to be right about your theology, um, and that isn't easy to do, especially in evangelical Christianity, when we're taught that it's about having the, all the answers, it's about being certain, it's about being right. And if you're not careful, what you will do is you'll move from one certainty to another certainty. And I promise you that if you do it that way, give it five or 10 years and you will deconstruct again. And it'll be painful again because you have let the cement harden once more on this. Uh, your, your identity is wrapped up in, in this belief system, right? So my thing is, don't let the cement harden. Hold loosely to these things you believe, right? Uh, or you fall into this pattern of, you know, no matter how many times I change my mind, I'm always right. And I did that. I went through that, right? So when I, like, for example, I used to believe eternal conscious torment. I was right. I could prove to you I was right. But then I then I changed my mind. I deconstructed that. And then I believed in annihilation. Well, now I'm right. It's annihilation. And then a few years later, I go, wait a minute. Hold on. I, now I think it's universal reconciliation. And now I'm right. But to, to take that pr perspective, to say, no matter how many times I change my mind, I'm always right. Um, I would say flip it around. 
and let's be really honest. I was wrong before. I'm probably wrong about some things now. And I'll bet I'm going to be wrong in the future. So it's not about being right. Being right has nothing to do with it. Just let go of the whole desire to be right. Because once you let go of being right, then you're not arguing on Facebook with people. You're not debating your family over the dinner table. You're not trying to convince them how wrong they are and how right you are. Right? You reach a place. I, I, I think the flip side of what I'm saying about you know, deconstructing your need to be right, sort of like how do you do that? What I have found is that it, it, the important thing is to embrace mystery. So my book, Solo Mysterium, is kind of all about that. Mm -hmm. I wrote Solo Mysterium after I wrote the seven-part Jesus Un series um, because I realized that after having gone through that myself, after having other people walk through those sort of seven kind of topics of deconstruction that are these big things we're trying to wrestle with, that at the end of all of that, what I'm left with is the realization that if I'm talking about God, that's what theology is. I'm talking about a being that is beyond human comprehension, that transcends no knowledge, right? As Paul says. And so if I if I start there, I start with the fact that I'm I'm talking about God when I talk about theology and I'm talking about a being beyond human comprehension. It makes no sense to say, now let me tell you all about God. What do you what? How can I do that? I just I just acknowledge that God is beyond human comprehension. So no, we can never speak about God with this sort of certainty. I can't say I know. I can say I believe, I think, or like right now, I think, with the realization that in a few months or years, maybe I won't. I'll think something else. So the focus, I think, uh, the important thing is not to focus on having all the right theology, having all the right answers. To me, that's that's a big thing, uh, what I want to deconstruct from, right, in my evangelical world. It was all about being right. So I want to, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to play that game. I don't want to be a fundamentalist about my deconstruction. And so I think that's embracing mystery is such an important thing. Um, but it takes sort of rewiring your brain. It takes, um, you know, some time to re rewrite those tapes in your head that convince you that it is about, you have to be right. You know, you have to prove you're right. You, you can't accept somebody saying something you disagree with, um, to reach a place where you're kind of like, okay. I hear what you're saying. That's what you believe. That's cool. Maybe I used to believe that myself. I don't anymore. That's all right. You know? Yeah. I think that's so wise. And it just strikes me as you're talking about how important that is. You're right. It's what, what we really want to deconstruct is this need that we have to yes. have it correct and have it all figured out. And it's funny, if you just do that, that, and that is in part why it's so hard, because if you just do that, all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait, what have I been doing this whole time? Right. And <laughs> it just you can just tell, and I can tell from my own self when it was going on, but also when talking with others, you just see the anxiety shoot through the roof as yes. soon as you start to go down that pathway. Yes. And then and then you try to go like, hey, th what's happening with that this anxiety right now? Because that that's that's betraying something going on underneath. That's right. It has little or nothing to do with love. Yes, uh, that's exactly right. Yeah, and see, yeah. And see, this is the thing too. There's such a beautiful freedom um, when you truly deconstruct and especially with the more you can really embrace mystery like that. I've just found incredible freedom to love people and to to, to relate to people as one human being to another human being. So much of my upbringing as a as a Christian, evangelical Christian, 
was I was a I was a Christian relating to non-Christians, or I was right. a Christian relating to Jews, or a Christian relating to Muslims, or and a you're Christian usually on to top, and they're usually and of course below. yeah we're on top, and there are these poor little people on the bottom right. that we're trying to help these poor things that that don't don't have all the wisdom that we do. Um, <laughs> but see, once I deconstruct all that, and I and and being right about all those things doesn't matter to me anymore. Then when I meet somebody, I just get to meet them. I just get to learn about them. And then, wow, they're a fascinating person. Oh, they're, they're Muslim. Great. That's cool. They're Jewish. Great. I don't know. They're atheist. I don't care. Whatever. Yeah. You know, I, but I can, I'm not worried at, you know, in the conversation of, oh, I've got to share the gospel with them. <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't tell them, you know, that something that they needed to know. I didn't convince them that they were wrong, that, that their view was wrong. Um, I, I just, when you abandon that, you, you're just like, you have, you have no anxiety anymore. You have all this freedom. And you just get to enjoy people as other human beings. And guess what? You also then have a kind of humility where you realize, like, I have something to learn from other people. And um, maybe I should pay attention. <laughs> maybe I should listen a little bit more. I should ask more questions rather than being the one with all the answers. Yeah. If, uh, I heard the word freeing. And that that's yes. a really good word. <laughs> I remember yeah. towards the end of my denominational life uh, when they were when they were fixing to uninvite me from the tribe officially <laughs> right around that time was happening. And I was having lunch with a denominational leader. And among other things, I said, um, I said, this waiter that is helping us, this server, I said, I don't have any compulsion to share like any kind of biblical news with him or her. I can't remember who it was. And I remember just how much that blew their mind. I was trying to impress upon them how great it is to not have to feel like you're constantly Telling people, you know, yes. that they got it wrong or you're trying to lead someone to Jesus. Yeah. Meanwhile, Jesus is probably closer to them than half of us in the church anyhow. So, yes. Yeah, it's it's a freeing, non-anxious thing. And uh, I'm really thankful to have discovered that. Not that I'm always non-anxious, but I mean, better I'm than just not anxious be. about that. Right, right. <laughs> right. No, I agree with you on that. Like, yeah. that's been really wonderful. Um and so I, because of that, I, I do have some friends that are Muslim that yeah. are wonderful people. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, I, I love them and, um, and people that are atheists and people, you know, they're just, it's like getting to know and spend time with and listen to people that don't look like me, think like me, agree with me. I, I mean, this is the thing. And even in the house church experience that we had, um, that I, I started to realize was because we had a very, um, very unique house church experience in that there was no statement of faith. The the only bar for for being a part of our community was if you were you like Jesus, you love Jesus, and you wanted to spend time talking about Jesus and learning how to live like Jesus. And so because of that, we had a whole bunch of people from all kinds of different streams. I mean, everything from like oneness Pentecostalism to conservative Southern Baptist, Amish, uh, brother brethren. Um, I mean, everything. Right, Lutherans, Methodists. Uh, charismatics, everything. And and on paper, that sounds like a train wreck. That just sounds mm -hmm. like, oh, an argument, a nonstop argument of theology, right? But the beautiful thing was it wasn't. We never argued about theology because that's not why we were there. We weren't there because we all agreed on theology. We we knew for a fact we didn't. The thing we had in common was was Jesus. And that was it. Like, so whenever so what that taught us was um that it, there was there was value there was benefit in listening to people who had different perspectives on uh, on things than we did and frankly i i think 
at least for me, that's how I grow and learn. Like iron sharpens iron when there's some sparks, when mm -hmm. there's some conversation, when there's mm -hmm. someone has an idea that's different than yours. Like the, the worst thing, I, honestly, my definition of hell would be to sit in a room with a bunch of people and everything I said, they all just nodded their head and said, okay, yeah, yeah. Like, really? Nobody has another idea than that. No one's going to challenge that. No one's going to say, yeah, I see that, but I kind of see it this other way. Or, hey, what about this other thing? Like that to me is interesting. That's growth. That's that's the potential for a conversation. And and that's the opposite of I think what it, in the evangelical Christian world, what I what I realized was I didn't really get an education. I got an indoctrination. Hmm. And indoctrination is when they only tell you one thing. You all are, you have to agree. You can even sign a piece of paper saying you agree with this thing. And they're never going to tell you any other views. They're not going to say, oh, by the way, in church history, you know, people didn't think this way. Some, some people thought another way. So it's indoctrination, right? Education is telling me all of the possible things, being open to all of the different ideas and letting me decide for myself which one makes better sense to me. And you can, if you want to have another idea, have a different idea. That's okay too. Um, so that experience was very, very helpful for me. Um, it just kind of taught me how to listen to and be in a room with people who disagree with me on theology and recognize that I did have something to learn from those people. You know what I mean? Cause I, cause I think, uh, especially as a teacher in, in Christian circles, I was, I was definitely trained again to be the one with the answers. I, I knew the answer. I understood the Bible better than anybody else. Um, so I was the Bible answer man. And I, I, I learned how to shift away from that to kind of just being the question guy. I, I, I asked questions and I let other people ask questions and I didn't try to quickly answer questions. I, I remained open to hear what other people were going to say uh, before I jumped in, you know, and that, that was a very healthy thing. Yeah. That sounds like a gift. That's pretty cool. Well, you mentioned uh, Solo Mysterium, and then your latest is Solo Deus, right? Isn't that the yes. most recent? That's, That's the one right. I've read. I'm, I'm almost done with it. Uh, yep. I picked that up recently. And by the way, I love the title. That's a nice little play on on the words. Thank you. I'm glad you like the title. I just got to say, I, always have, I, I need to mention it. Like, uh, I love the title, too. Yeah. Um, but both Solo Mysterium and Solo Deus, uh, David Bentley Hart let me know. Um, my Latin is is incorrect. It's horrible. It's, it's uh, but so that's not the correct way to say what I'm trying to say. I just like it better, and I think people like you and me who probably don't walk around speaking Latin all day um, don't know or care that the Latin yeah. isn't correct. So, yeah. but uh, yeah, I like that. I like it. It's it's the idea of solideos, but it's only God, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, for the record, if uh, if I got to sit down with David Bentley Hart. Um, there'd be a few things he doesn't like about my theology. There's that's a couple, because right. a couple things I don't like about his. So that's right. That's uh, he doesn't fit within open and relational theology too yeah, much. Yeah, sometimes. no, I think you're right. That's Speaking right. of that, I, I was reminded earlier. You're talking about the Muslim faith. Uh, Tom and I are doing a book right now. Tom Ward, uh, where we're editing some uh, open and relational Muslim thinkers, oh, bringing really? Muslims and Christians together, and it's been so great to be on the wow. inside of that and to help edit it because uh, that just forces you to read through it. And it turns out, not surprisingly, Muslims are going through all the same stuff that Christians that, do. There's a, there's, a, there's a minority voice that is open to the idea that God doesn't control and force everything yeah. down one path, just like the Christians. So 
That's amazing. I really honestly had no idea, but that's very, that gives me hope. I know. That's <laughs> if there could cool. be a sort of a deconstruction Muslim movement, that would be really great. Because yeah. when I do talk to my Muslim friends, um, I have one friend who's pretty open-minded, actually. He's even bought Solar Mysterium, and, and I guess he's read it. He's, we've talked a little bit about it. Um, I don't know if he's really into it so much, but at least he's willing to read it, right? I know, and, but I have other Muslim friends who are not so open to that stuff. Yeah. So, um, well, this will be this will be a great resource. We'll have to stay in touch yeah. about it, and uh, it'll be out probably the first of the year. So that'll be yeah, cool. man, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Real quick though, that reminds yeah. me of something else. I, I want to plug uh, something. Um, so one thing that Choir is doing is uh, we're partnering with Pathios, and we have a book that's it's already done we're just kind of waiting for the cover and the preface uh it should be out i would think this year uh before the end of the year and it's called sitting sitting in the shade of another tree the mm. subtitle is what we learn from other faiths mm. and every chapter is from a muslim a buddhist a hindu a baha'i a, a catholic a christian a progressive christian all of them sharing what they have learned from people of other faiths and oh my gosh, it is, it's better than I thought it would have been when we first came up with the idea. That's so um, I'm very excited about these kinds of things where we're, we're now talking to, to one another and we're focusing on what we have in common more than we're focused on what we, uh, what we disagree on. I think this is really helpful. That's awesome. Yeah. I should have mentioned already in the recording, but uh, uh, some of the listeners will be familiar with the Reconstructionist and that was with yeah. Choir Publishing. So yeah, Keith, great book. Thank who you. Wrote that? Who wrote that book? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> who wrote that? And so for, yeah, folks listening, Keith and Matthew um, Destino, how do you pronounce it? Destino. yeah. Are running that now. So that's uh, that's very cool. So I'm really glad that we're, we're connected in that way too. Yeah, that is awesome. So yeah, tell us about uh, Solo uh, Deus, um, how yeah. that came to be and what are you wrestling with in that book? Yeah, so I probably wrote Solo Mysterium. And again, Solo Mysterium was all about, again, embracing mystery and all of that. Um, I just felt like there were some things. And again, they came directly out of my own personal struggles. So uh, when I found myself in this place, um, and, the, and the thing that kind of drove me to write the book, Solo Deus, um, I, had, I had pretty well embraced the idea of uh, panentheism. And, you know, Richard Rohr is probably the most famous person, I guess, that people would know that, um, you know, that, that embraces panentheism. And I was, I was great with that. I think that I like that idea. I could see it kind of made sense to me. But um, the more I really started thinking about panentheism, I, I started feeling like there was this kind of like, but how is it really different from pantheism, right? So panentheism is the idea that God is in all things. Um, pantheism says basically God is all things. And so uh, I was I was sort of trying to find, you know, the overlap or the 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 line there between these two belief systems. Um, for a brief time, I actually even decided I was a pantheist. Um, I thought, no, no, it is pantheism. Um, but then what kind of brought me back from that was this realization that, at least for me, whatever I whatever God is, when we talk about God, and again, it's very difficult to do this. It's very hard to have a conversation uh, and to think about God. But when we are doing that, at least for me, that whatever God is, is relational. There's a, there's a relationship going on there. And for there to be a relationship, there has to be some kind of me and God kind of uh, relationship. Um, 
And so that kind of brought me back to, okay, I think maybe it still is panentheism. But what I, I what I think I ended up in the book was uh, coming to the place of saying that at, in a way now, I don't think it's panentheism or pantheism. And this isn't going to be very satisfying to people because what I would say is that it's some, it's this, if you had a Venn diagram, it's sort of the gray overlap between those two things. It isn't quite one or the other. It's sort of yes and, or both and, um, meaning there is still this mystery to God in a way that like we can't figure it out completely. And I don't think we ever will. And, and again, embracing mystery says, I don't need to do that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't require that, um, especially for thinking about God. But I literally, through the process, and I, I duplicated in the book, I literally drew on a napkin. I, I went through these stages of trying to draw on a napkin, trying to make sense, which just sounds so dumb. Um, and, and yes, it was. It was kind of dumb. But I needed to go through those steps to, to get to the place that I did you know, in the book of trying to figure this out for myself in a way that made sense to me. Um, but I also then deal with some other ideas in the book about when we're talking about God, um, the idea that you know, the subtitle of the book is What If God Is All of Us, which is a bit of a panentheistic idea and even a pantheistic idea. It's a little bit of both. Um, but it's just something that's become, it, it just became very fascinating to me to think about the relationship between us and God, you know, this, yeah. this incarnation of Christ that each of us uh, is and, and that we embody in some mysterious way. And what is that? Mm-hmm. so yeah they kind of then then the book kind of goes on from there yeah i really appreciate that and i think um theologically it's such an important thing so uh you n- neither you nor myself would identify as theist yeah and we're not atheist right um so so really probably for me to panentheism probably gets to it i have a a Wesleyan background, and I didn't even realize this, but, you know, Wesley was talking about God being the soul of the universe Ooh. way back, you know, almost not quite 200 years ago, 150 years ago. And yeah. I never never even realized that until I did some, you know, I dove into panentheism a little bit. And I'm like, wait yeah. a minute, this is uh, this is pretty cool. This is a part of, of our tradition. Um, oh, it totally uh, is. And, and actually, there's a there's a part in the book where I talk about um, Athanasius. And Athanasius um, pretty much says some of the same things, right? Um, and, and what drove me crazy <laughs> was I was watching this debate um, between these two guys. And um, it was Douglas Grutai and uh, Randall Rouser. It's a great debate, by the way. It's on YouTube. You should check it out. And in the debate, Douglas Grutai, um challenges Randall Rouser because Randall Rouser reads Athanasius saying – some of the exact same things that Richard Rohr is saying and, you know, these ideas of, like you just said, right, this idea that Christ is the soul of the universe, um, which is a panentheistic idea. Yeah. Yeah. And Grutai pushes back and says, oh, no, they're not saying the same thing at all. You know, and I'm like, well, in what way? I wish I, I, I just wish I could have been on that call. I want to just challenge him. Come on, dude. What do you mean? Yeah. Because, because what you're saying is. Um, I, you know, I, I, what I, my challenge is at what point then does, 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 uh, does Christ become incarnate, right? At what point then does Christ fill everything in every way? Cause it seems like what Gutai wants to say is that Christ doesn't fill everything in every way until Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But that disagrees with Athanasius. That disagrees mm-hmm. with almost actually all Christian theology that, no, they would not say that, right? right. The idea is, no, Christ was, has always been, you know, uh, it's, it didn't just happen at some point in time. And so if you say that, then you are saying a pan- panentheistic thing. You're saying that Christ has always been, right, uh, in all and through all. So, Yeah. Th- those concepts, and then then also realizing too, and I talk about this in the book, like um, no one talks about it anymore, but pretty much from like 150 AD all the way through like th- uh, Thomas Aquinas in like the 1200s, 1250, um, you know, uh, Augustine, like all of these big church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, um, they're all Hippolytus of Rome. They all had this belief that, you know, because, because God became man, God became man so that man could become God, right? This deification of man. And I had never heard that. Like, no one talks about that, right? You'll never hear a sermon on that in any any church today. But this was like a very long-running theological perspective in Christian tradition for a very long time. Again, like I said, up at least until the Thomas Aquinas. So, um, again, I just wanted to bring some of that back in again, because to yeah. me, that's part of this mystery of, in, of how we are the incarnation of Christ. Yeah. Um, and what are the implications of that? Yeah, I think that's super important. You know, with open and relational theology, we we try to live in that field, too, and talk about. Um, um, and I'm not saying you weren't saying this, but just made me think of it wasn't just a moment in time when, you know, God becomes uh, in Jesus becomes man. But that really every moment is a type of incarnation. Yes. We're, we're constantly becoming God. God's constantly becoming us. It's this yes. reciprocal, like breathing in and out. And mm-hmm. so a few weeks ago, um, I heard someone say, might have been Bruce Epperly, Matt, I can't remember who it was, but um, that God is the youngest thing there is. Ooh. And I thought, that is really cool because we've always heard God is the oldest thing and uh but God is also the youngest and the newest thing he's happening right now and right yeah his incarnation's going on all the time oh wow boy that I wish I'd had that quote for my book (laughs) I know well now you got it for the next one uh, yeah I do have one more I'm um, it's going to be a trilogy I have one more solo book to write um hopefully it'll be out next year cool well we'll look forward to that for sure I, uh, I've taken a lot of your time. I really appreciate hanging out with you. Thanks for all you've done and continue to do. I know lots of people have benefited from your work. And so uh, it's really, yeah. really fun to connect with you today. Yeah, thank you so much, Jonathan. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate you giving me a chance to talk talk to you about these ideas and this topic. And um, yeah, it's something I really, uh, I'm really excited about. And yeah. it's, it's funny. It's the great thing is to talk to someone who, um, who's read the book and who thinks, you know, kind of the same way. Yeah. It's very rare. I mean, at least I don't know if this is your, maybe, maybe you're in better circles than I am, <laughs> or different circles than I am, but, but like, especially when I, when I wrote Solo Mysterium and then Solo Deus, um, it became more and more challenging to find um, theologians willing to endorse my books. Interesting. Uh, you know, because I, I feel like I, I started to, like we talked earlier, right. It's sort of like uh, I'm asking I'm challenging some of the some of the conventions that some uh, even progressive Christian authors aren't really yet ready to go there. Yeah. And, um, so I, yeah. I, I understand what you mean. Yes, I have lots of people have self-selected out of relationship with me yes. as well. <laughs> some of them more formally, some of them informally. 
when you when you wade into the process influenced open and relational world yeah it's like holy cow all bets are off but that's okay too it's all a part of the evolution of the thing and uh and then it just invites me to be patient and to, right. to grow my character, which apparently <laughs> I need to still do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, same here. Absolutely. Oh, man, that's for sure. All right. Well, appreciate it. We'll talk to you later. I'll, uh, I'll hit the end or I'll stop recording.